Hi, I'm Vishen Lakiani, founder of Mind Valley, the school for human transformation. You're listening to the Mind Valley podcast, where we'll be bringing you the greatest teachers and thought leaders on the planet to discuss the world's most powerful ideas in personal growth for mind, body, spirit, and work. Welcome to the Mind Valley podcast. This episode is especially for those of you who are leading teams at work, or even for that solo entrepreneur amongst you who's looking at making your first hire. Can't wait to get this information out because this episode is based on a talk by Keith Ferrazzi. Here's the background. Keith is a truly brilliant mind. He wrote the New York Times number one bestseller, Who's Got Your Back and Never Eat Alone. He's a frequent contributor to Harvard Business Review, Forbes, Fortune, and more. And Keith is seen as an expert on building high-performing teams True the application of being real to your coworkers, to your managers, to the people that you spend the bulk of your waking hours with. It is crazy that in the world today, so many people are disengaged from work and disengaged from the people they work with. Keith, in this episode, asks a simple question. How many of you here, if you knew that your coworker had something they could improve upon would withhold sharing that information with them because you are not in an environment where you feel the openness to share or that you're afraid they might take it badly or that you simply don't give a damn. So many of us work in workplaces where we lack that ability to be truly candid with each other. We lack that ability to be ourselves. We feel judged or misunderstood. What if there's a way around that? And what if this way involved just a few simple applications of culture hacking that you could bring to your workplace? Applications that literally could take you just a few minutes a week that can create a massive shift. So this is where Keith's expertise comes in. Keith became the youngest ever CMO for Deloitte. Now, he did this because he's got a phenomenal brain. And while working as CMO for companies like Deloitte and Starwood, he began to study organizations. He began to study what makes a company truly extraordinary. How do you play with a new set of work rules instead of the industrial age ones that so many of us run our organizations by? So this is a fairly long podcast episode, and we're going to jump right in. This episode is based on a talk that Keith Ferrazzi delivered at AFES in Portugal in 2019. Let's get started with Keith Ferrazzi on how to create highly effective and high-performing teams. I'm Vishen Lakiani, and this is the Mind Valley Podcast. So the first thing I want to make sure everyone's clear of is whether or not you have a cogent team that reports to you or whether or not you're an individual manifesting something in the world and you have to interrelate with a group of people to do that, this will be equally as valuable for you, I hope. So with that in mind, um, just a, a quick backshot. It, what's, what's interesting is that my work started, well, I was a chief marketing officer in a couple of big companies, Deloitte and Starwood. And I observed in both of those organizations, um, in one organization, incredibly high-performing team. 
in another organization a group of individuals that worked as silos. And if I go as far as to say not only silos, um, fear-based silos, where people were competitive, uh, it was a very challenging organizational design. Um, and it's interesting because it is possible to have dysfunctional teams and still have functional businesses. Right? And, and, but that, I would say it has been possible. It's, it's, it's my belief in research that the world of transformation that is upon us today, the competitive pressures that are upon us today, the market pressures of what our consumers demand of us are so extraordinary that it really is going to be impossible to do business in this work world without an entirely new set of work rules. And I'm very excited about exposing to you some of the research that we've been doing over about 20 years as they've been evolving. What are the new work rules in a new work world? Now, when I wrote Never Eat Alone, it was a book on networking. It was a book on building relationships. We spin ahead today, and what we find is that getting things done is how you manage networks. I don't know if any of you work in very large organizations, but in large organizations, we, we really, and that's most of my work, you know, we coach the turnaround of General Motors coming out of bankruptcy, um, the transformation with Dr. Jim Kim of the World Bank, uh, Verizon in its transformation. We're about to start with Delta Airlines. Very, very large organizations facing disruption and transformation looking to create executive team effectiveness that is allowing them to meet those transformational pressures. Um, and what we find is the most important thing is that we're finding the, the interdependency is what's defining business success today. If you're going to redefine your product, who leads that? Is it the chief product officer? Is it the head of sales who's out in the marketplace dealing with the product as it's not selling? Is it the marketing leader who's been doing marketing research? Right? Is it the technology person who knows what your systems can support? And the reality is that, as you can imagine, none of them can effectively lead the product transformation. They all have to do so interdependently. But that's not how we're hardwired to work today. Right? And so that's what we're going to be talking about. I want to land, this is actually a, a story I typically use at the very end of my talk, but I want to start with it for a very particular emotional hook reason. A number of years ago, I wrote my second book, Who's Got Your Back? And the idea was, if I was the guy researching networks, how important are close relationships with a small group of people? And what does it mean to... And what we found was that your personal success can be predicted by whether or not you have three people in your life who truly have your back. Now, define who, somebody who has your back. Somebody who tells you the truth, no matter what. Somebody that is supportive of you and will celebrate you and will be there in your corner no matter what. An individual who you know cares for you and is so generous that when you're not around, they're thinking about your agenda and activating on it. Right? Intimacy, generosity, candor, accountability, the four cornerstones of any great relationship are an individual that has your back. Now, when we did our research... 50% of Americans said that no one has their back. 
50% of Americans say that no one has their back, let alone three. And interestingly enough, of the 50% of Americans who said that no one has their back, 60% of them were married. Think about this. How many, and I just think about where I come from in Pittsburgh, how many housewives in Pittsburgh have dreams for themselves and their husbands don't give them the credence of caring about those dreams or aspirations um, beyond just how they think of them as a functionary in the house. I still see that when I go home to Pittsburgh in our environment. And if you look at America in general uh, and in the world, now the study was only American. I don't know, but I do feel that the, the perception in the, of, of loneliness is rampant in the world. Um, and I don't believe that the increase in electronic connectivity is soothing that. In fact, to some extent, it's exacerbating it because it creates an expectation that individuals feel that everybody's life is better than theirs and they're not worthy to engage with these glorious people having glorious lives that they see on the platforms. Does that make any sense to you? Yeah. So um, let me tell you a little story about my mom. So when I was writing Who's Got Your Back, I remembered that my mom used to have a group of ladies that she hung out with all the time. And I called her and I said, Mom, tell me about the group of ladies that you used to hang out with. And she goes, oh, you mean the card club girls? And I said, yeah, the card club girls. And the only thing I remembered was whenever the card club girls met at, my, at our house, my dad and I got kicked out. <laughs> and so I loved it because dad and I got to go have coconut cream pie you know, at the diner and he and I would sit around talking to his old buddies you know, that he had grown up with. And it was like the best thing for me. I had no, I, all I know is that, you know, mom had, and the other good news is there were lots of snacks left over that I, I got to come home to. So I was really pumped all around for my mom's car club girls. But that group of ladies met every month for 45 years. Every month for 45 years. And I asked my mom when I was writing the book, I said, mom, I have an idea. I believe what you had was something I'm writing about. Tell me a little bit about the importance of that group of ladies to you. And so she told me a story. She said, well, you remember when your dad was unemployed? And my dad was unemployed a lot. In the steel industry in the 70s, uh, it was fairly eviscerating. The whole industry was, was wiped out. Towns to this very day have never recovered. Pittsburgh's recovered. CMU and a lot of wonderful places to work there. But the original towns that were the steel mills, the coal mines, etc., the very same people, like my parents, are still sitting in those little towns, destitute. Their children have moved away. And it's quite sad. And he says, remember when your dad was unemployed for six months? So when, you're, when you were unemployed for six months, uh, you lost your uh, unemployment insurance. And you were offered by the government welfare cheese. That was your supplemental governmental support. And my mom said, we never had to eat welfare cheese because those girls would always cook extra and bring it around when I would call them and tell them that your dad was out looking for work. They would bring food down and I would pretend that I was able to make a dollar stretch and put real food on the table because of those girls. And she said that um, when your aunt died, and it was funny because all of them were aunts. None of them were related. One of them was a related aunt, but it was like Aunt Wilma, Aunt Patty, it's Aunt, aunt Rita. She's like, when your aunt died, um, 
we didn't cancel Card Club because your aunt didn't want to. Two days before she passed of breast cancer, um, we sat on her bed and said goodbye to her and played cards. And when your dad died, she was telling me, she said, um, everybody got back to their lives in a couple of months. And I understand that, but I didn't want to leave my house, she said. She said, those ladies made sure I left my house every day for four months until I was ready to leave my house on my own, right? And so when I heard that story, first of all, I was so blessed my mother has this. In fact, that's them now. That was them when I brought them to the book tour. And, and uh, it's so funny because my mom used to be a cleaning lady. And when I bought her a new home, she told me the neighborhood she wanted to live in. And I bought her a home, and I didn't know why. She wanted to live next door to the meanest lady she used to work with. <laughs> and now she, anytime, I, anytime uh, there's a special occasion, she always makes me send a limo to pick her up. <laughs> so this limo drives up in front of her house. And I swear to God, I think she waits until the lady sees her until... <laughs> but anyway, so with this, this uh, black SUV shows up to drive the ladies into, uh, uh, into Pittsburgh. And, and unfortunately, this is the, this is, there's only three of them left now. Um, my mom says that it gets difficult because they have to keep changing the card game every time one of them dies. <laughs> and then she says, one of these days, one of them is going to be sitting there playing solitaire thinking of the others. Right? I, I tell you that story um, because, again, I know how blessed I was that my mother had that. But then I really looked in myself and I said, I didn't. I didn't have that in my life. I didn't have that tribe. Um, and I then really reflected and I thought to myself, I'm not the kind of leader that's building that in my company. I had a lot of work to do. And that went down a path of about six years of research for how to be the kind of leader that creates the kind of team that won't fail in a radically interdependent world of today. And that's the work that I wanted to share with you today. Um, we all know what's going on in the marketplace. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but the... The transformational pressures are crazy, and I, could, I have a whole riff on this. I just did for the Wall Street Journal the other day. Um, CEOs are scared. Any, even the disruptors are being disrupted by a lot of venture money being thrown at the disruption of their business that have an entirely different scorecard than going businesses have to. And customer expectations are crazy because all of us, the blessing is all of us have the opportunity to have free at our fingertips all the time. These were services that some of our companies used to get great profit margins from, right? So it's quite a challenge in the transformational pressures. And it's interesting because a lot of people think about the millennial population as a, as a challenge and roll their eyes. I don't. You know, I, I joke, I'm like, how dare millennials demand purpose in their life? <laughs> How dare millennials, like, want to be cared for in the workplace? How dare millennials 
be a type of individuals that, um, you know, that want to think of their careers um, as fluid and flexible and balanced, right? What a beauty, you know, like we gave that up a long time ago. How dare them? <laughs> well, I, I believe we've now set a beautiful new hurdle for how do we have to serve in the workplace. And, and I think that great leaders are going to have to figure out how to step up and not roll our eyes at millennials, but actually step up to the demand of workplace that frankly cascades from millennials to gig workers. Your best employees won't work for you anymore. Your best employees will demand to work for themselves and sell you their time at a significantly higher rate by the hour. And it's already happening in software. Um, now, that doesn't say, that's not for the mainstay employee, but your absolute best are going to wake up and realize, and therefore you have to recruit them and engage them every day, if that makes sense. Um, all of this leads to the more important thing is that hierarchy and, um, and control and traditional org design has been blown up. Just for what I was saying earlier, and it's very interesting because I do work for very large organizations. And then I go and I look at, at startups who are high growth and they're coming fast. And then they go and hire some HR person from a large organization to come in and replicate an org design that is exactly the damn reason those individuals were being disrupted. I mean, I, I, I've, I'm, sat, I'm sitting now in conversations at Uber, at Airbnb, etc. They're having exactly the same problems in their organizations and, and, and potential being disrupted as these large organizations are because they haven't fundamentally rethought what org design looks like. So I have a belief. I have a belief, and there isn't technology created for this, and there needs to be, but I, I have a belief that the future of organization design is goals aligned to networks. For every goal you have in your organization or in your life, you then ask yourself, who are the limited number of individuals critical to achieve that goal? And around that goal, that's the team. Does that make sense to everybody? Now, that has nothing to do with reporting structures. It has nothing to do with org design of tradition. So how does one lead an organization where you really don't worry about hierarchy, control, and org design, but you lead an organization around goals aligned to networks of people who are to achieve that goal? And with a, as a result, you would be in multiple teams. You have multiple goals, there's multiple teams, and you'd cross against those. Is this making sense to everybody? Now, there are some things that don't get done then in that order. One of the things that wouldn't get done would be performance reviews. Where would performance reviews and feedback come? Because the old work contract is that you get your performance review and you get your feedback from your manager. And that's where the contract is that I'm to get feedback from my manager. You don't get your feedback from your peer. That would be rude. You actually get it from your manager hierarchically. Now, the fun thing about this new world is you'd have to recontract. That feedback would then come from the network of those you're working with. 
Does this make sense? So that's, there's a number of literal new rules you would have to contract with your organization to afford a working world where, because you do have to have feedback. The funny thing is today, managers could barely give you appropriate feedback anyway, because most of our managers are not even seeing the work that we're doing, because we're on so many dispersed teams. And so the, again, this idea, and yet every piece of HR software is orchestrated around hierarchy, right? And every HR leader immediately goes to the org chart. So we really have to fundamentally rethink a lot of the rules of where things come from. Strategic direction comes from top down, right? There's very little co-creation of strategic direction. Development comes from top down. So we have to have a new set of rules around that. Um, what we found is that when you start to run your organizations without thinking about org design, but you start running your organizations thinking more about relationships, there are four primary places where making this change matters the most. And any of you who lead an organization could pick any four of these to start. One of them in the most obvious place to radically accelerate relational competency is customer anything customer-facing. Think about what Tony Shea did in his call centers at Zappos, where he made his call centers a customer intimacy opportunity. Call centers in the past used to be something you'd try to get people on and off the phone as quickly as possible. And now they, they celebrate people who can keep the customer chatting and engaging lovingly. Um, and it's actually the elongation of the call in a, along with a positive customer feedback that gives people higher rewards because he sees the customer intimacy as the, as the better. We have redefined it at um, one British chemical company. We were able to create $1.4 billion of new pipeline and closed $750 million of deals in 18 months just by coaching strategic account teams how to think more relationally with their strategic partners at their companies. And in a sense, to create co-elevating teams where instead of selling to somebody, you created a co-elevating team, a collaborative team between yourself and the client, and you co-created solutions together and you built relationships together, and it radically changed the revenue in a B2B world. It we've, we've done this at Accenture now, um, Verizon. Many, many B2B companies have learned that the acceleration of customer intimacy uh, and co-creating teams using this model has been very successful. The, the next two places where I'm going to spend more time is on the last one, but functional interdependencies have to get broken down. In, and even the smallest of organizations that you have, many of you are leaders of small teams, please, you've got to let your people realize that none of them owns the success of their job. None of them owns the success of their job. And that if you have a head of marketing, if you have a head of, of product, if you have a head of technology, they are nothing more than a co-elevating, co-creative team in service of the business outcomes. And that's what I want to spend our time on today. 
which is what does it mean to redefine, and typically I'm going to use the executive team as the medium for that, um, what does it mean to def- redefine the rules of an executive team's behavior to shift them into a team that could truly be transformational? So um, for the sake of this exercise and for our work together, what I want you to do is I want you to either you have a company with a team and that makes a lot of sense and we'll just say that's your team. But if you don't have a company with a team, then I'm going to suggest you have a mission with a team, and that team may not be identified by you yet as a team, but there's a team around your mission that you need to go form. Does that make sense to you? Right. So the question, and now we'll talk about how do you build that team that allows your mission to succeed exponentially. So I want to make sure everybody's got something. So I want to start with just a couple of minutes in your pods of three. Earlier on, we divided everybody up into three. I want you to just share with each other what your, what your mission is and what your team is. So my friend here uh, has been taking a year or two off after having left his very successful uh, uh, doctor practice back in Australia and trying to figure out what's next for him. It might be more of a struggle for you to think about who is your team, given that you're still trying to figure out your mission. But for the sake of this exercise, pick a mission. Maybe it's the, uh, the birthing of the new organization that you came up with yesterday. He came up with GayFest, um, <laughs> which is A-Fest for the homosexuals. Um, and so, you know, maybe that's what you're thinking about, and that's your te- what's your team around it, but it's up to you. Others of you have bona fide teams out of New York, you know, hundreds of people in your organization, so that'll be an easier one. What's your mission? What's your team? Just share it. I'll give you just two or three minutes to solidify one. If after the end you still haven't gotten one, then raise your hand, and let's make sure you have one. We'll, we'll work through it with you. So in a group of three, yes? A vision or a goal, something you're trying to achieve. And who's the team you're trying to achieve it with? And raise your hands if you need me to come over by and help you. Let me, let me just get a couple of shout outs. Who's got, a, who's got a mission in a team that's pretty clear to them? Yes, sir. What's yours? Can you just wait for the mic? Yeah. Okay, so um, in my company, we, do, um, we roll out renewable energy plants. So my mission is to roll out solar energy across different geographies. Great. My team is a team of 10 people expanding to 20 people. Beautiful. Done. That's easy. Perfect. Do you have yours? Yes. Here. Can I have it? I got it. <laughs> oh, you got it. Okay, great. Oof. Uh, so I have an external CFO business. So we uh, play the CFO role external to the businesses that we work with. I'm dealing with accountants, which it, it sounds like you've had a lot of experience in that space. Yeah. So my mission is to get them to develop their communication skills. And who's your team? Uh, I've got 10 people on the team right now. Yep. Great. Good. Anybody else? A little more esoteric? Those are all pretty yeah. easy. Hi. Um, does that work? Yep. Uh, so I've got a team across many, many regions, like from Asia, Japan, Africa, Middle East, Europe. And our mission is to influence government to reduce carbon emission and making everyone to be more um, self-aware of how you use your electricity, your energy, uh, and influencing the way you use it. Great. Do you want to do yours? Do you have one? Uh, Let's go for it. I'm just trying to get examples from different types. 
So the mission would be to improve the life quality of the gay community by facilitating authentic connections, and there would be quite a team to build. You still have to build your team? Yes. Great. So he's got a mission. He's going to build his team. Yep. What if you're a solo? Right. My mission would be to build a team. That's great. Is that an okay? Is That's that fine. a viable mission to build Perfect. a team? Perfect. Okay. You'll start with the recruitment of the first person, and then right. we'll talk about how to co-create from there. Yeah, because yep. I'm a one-man show. The lady behind you. And then we'll come on back. Hello. Um, my name's Mary. I'm a Grammy-nominated recording engineer and radio producer, so my mission is to put beautiful music out into the world, and I work with a team of other producers, radio hosts, and musicians who come in to the radio station in Chicago, and we put out live music, and I record um, classical music albums. Beautiful. Beautiful. Okay. You, does everybody get the idea? You have a mission in a team. Good. So... I'm going to assume that you've either got one right now or you'll keep iterating it a little bit as we go, which is fine. Um, now, the, fo- the most important thing that we as team leaders, and I'm going to call all of us team leaders for a moment, but you'll, I'll, I'll, I'll deviate from that language a little bit as we speak, and you'll see why. As team leaders, your job is to lead the co-creation of the success of the mission. Your job is to lead the co-creation of the success of the mission. I think there was an historical time when you ex- it was expected that you would bring the strategy. But for somebody that is, for instance, in the music industry, and you have a vision, what you have to recognize is that the first person you invite into your team, you're inviting them into their team. Do you understand that? The first person you invite into your team, you're inviting them into their team. Nobody wants to join your team. Nobody wants to be on your team. They want to be on their team. So get out of your mind that this is your team that you're inviting people to. Now, if you happen to be in an organization, you're a CEO and you have hierarchy, you've got a little harder work to do to pull that off. But your success will be when you're able to invite people into their team. Could you imagine the engagement level that would go up? Could you imagine the the amount of Saturdays and Sundays people would put into the work? Could you imagine the risk-taking and the strength of voice that people would have, right, if it was their team? Often when we have a vision... And we do this a lot when we're building movements. Our our businesses are two things. One, we coach executive teams. That's what we do. We don't coach executives. We go in and we work with an executive team for six months to redefine the rules of that executive team. We go in for six months and we're there for a dinner and a day once a month for six months. And during that period of time, they totally reboot all of their belief systems on how they are as a team, and we leave them with the sustainable practices and rituals that allow them to be a, what we call a co-elevating team moving forward. The other thing we do is we build movements inside of organizations. So an organization like uh, General Motors that has 250,000 souls and needs to radically change behavior across the board needs movement leaders 
in their organization. And those movement leaders need to enlist fellows and peers in, in joining a movement of change in the organization. Similar, by the way, to the quality movement of the 70s and 80s and 90s, TQM, Six Sigma, Black Belt, um, those were movements that were led by black belts of Six Sigma down at the plant. It wasn't central quality control that transformed quality. It was the black belt down at a plant that re-engineered process. Your job as a leader is to ignite movement leaders in your organization that co-create the movement that needs to occur. Who knows better to define the movement of change of the sales organization than, than activated role model salespeople who are committed to redefining the way they sell and then turning around, helping and coach their peers to adopt a new way of being. Does this make sense? Movement leaders, yes. Are there a few features or attributes um, that make someone feel like it's their team as opposed to your team? Like a few? Yeah. So we're going to actually go through the actual process. But yes, uh, the first thing is that it's co-creation. And there's nothing worse than buy-in or consensus. Buy-in is bullshit. Buy-in means you've cooked an answer and you're trying to sell it to someone. Nobody wants to be sold your shit. Buy-in is probably one of the least effective forms of transformational thinking because it assumes that a limited number of people at headquarters or in your little head was able to create a transformational answer without radical inclusion. Inclusion is what's going to give the breakthrough answers. Who makes the decision and how do you resolve conflict? Yep. So we'll get to the conflict piece. On the decision-making, decision-making still has, there is still authority in organizations. I'm not suggesting today that I, the organizations that I go into, they already have the traditional hierarchy. Um, I'm trying to get them to no longer lean on the traditional hierarchy, but in the case of a tie vote that needs to be broken, that's the one place where traditional hierarchy is valuable, right? The, the downside is when that hierarchy is leaned upon for the collaboration, meaning it doesn't get co-created, it emanates from the hierarchy. So you as a movement leader, as a leader in organizations, you're a movement leader. Your job is to be enlisting others to co-create. What I often say is that when you have a vision for something, you should say to yourself and say to other people, to your question earlier, I've got an idea that I think is 30% baked. Would you join me and us and helping get it to 60%? That should be your standard operating language when you birth a new team or birth a new mission. I've got a 30% baked idea and I'd like you, your help to get it to 60 and we'll never get it to 100 because the market change will always be constant and transformational pressures and demands will always be constant. And therefore, we'll just have to keep inviting other people and iterating. But to get us from 30 to 60, I need your co-creation. That's the level of I don't know humility that's needed to be a good leader today. Yeah. 
I have two questions. Firstly, with the co-creation. So I have a company of 500 people that grows to 800 people when we're in season. Mm-hmm. And just one example, we recently, well, I'd say about three years ago, we kind of redid our cult company culture. Mm-hmm. And we co-created it within a team of people from human resources, senior leadership, various departments, things like that. But then we had to roll, we have to still roll it out to the other 500 people. So how do you co-create with a team that that is that long, that big, and not still have to get buy-in at some point? Yeah. That's first, that's first question. I have a second one too. Yeah. Um, I don't believe in centralized creation of cultures. Well, we have we have company values, departmental values, and then your personal values. Yeah. And I totally get it. And I'm absolutely certain in your case, it's working beautifully. And I, so I have no... It's not. That's why I, I'm asking. I have no insight. <laughs> but I find those exercises a total fucking waste of time. And I'll tell you why. Um, be, first of all, the first thing I always do when I go into an organization is I ask somebody to dust off whatever they call their company culture and values, et cetera. And then I do a statistical audit that asks the organization where, whether anybody believes they are living to those principles and values. And I've never seen an organization rank above 50%. So failure, right? So something tells me that we are not engineering the, the right culture in the right way. So what we decide to do is we do something that we call behavioral engineering. I, don't, I also try to avoid words that I think have become um, overworn, overused, and meaningless. So culture, unfortunately, I think is meaningless. Even though it's a buzzword today, I think it's meaningless because of how poorly cultures are le- being led today and being created. So w- I'll give you an example. If you take a 250,000-person organization, like a big automotive company, coming out of bankruptcy. You ask the question, and this is, uh, I call this the killer question, is, is worthy of writing down. Which fewest people changing, which narrowest set of behaviors will allow us to meet our strategy? Which fewest people, which fewest people, because it's tough to change people. So which fewest people changing which narrowest behaviors will allow us to meet our... uh, Changing the narrowest of behaviors will allow us to meet our strategy. You ask your executive team that that conversation, facilitate a dialogue with your executive team. Ask your executive team, if there are five people in this entire company whose behavior had to change, who would they be and what's the behavior change? If there's 200 people in our company that have to change their behavior, which 200 people and what's the behavior change? Did you understand the simplicity of that? Now, the the bottom line is, it's probably the CEO. It's probably three or four of the executive team, right? And what I generally find is that it falls into those categories, Almost every organization needs a behavioral engineering of how you're touching customers. There's something about how you're touching customers 
and the way that some portion of your population is touching customers that you need to behavioral engineer, right? And by the way, one of the things you'll notice is I don't, I'm not necessarily prescribing an organization-wide culture. I would rather engineer behaviors for outcomes. And that actually bubbles up to me to a successful culture. I do believe, of course, in a successful culture. And you'll see the attributes of what I believe to be a successful culture. But I want to engineer them in specific roles that move the financial needle for the company. Because when you, nobody wants to spend time or take serious anything that they don't think has a direct impact on the business at hand today. So when you go do the cultural exercise, it's a nice separate exercise, but it's not necessarily the engineering of what's going on that's driving the needle, that, that, which pays us and gets our bonuses, et cetera. So I generally find that we need to engineer very specific behaviors against the strategy. So customer-facing, you might find that if you go down and look at the sales organization, the customer-facing organization, you start asking the question, what behaviors have to change here? You then engineer those behaviors, and what you, I generally find is that there are a set of individuals at each role in your company that are the behaviors or are leaning toward the behaviors that you want everybody in their role to have. Those are the people you want to bring together to co-create the new role definition. They become your movement leaders. You actually, what we're doing right now in a very large uh, dispersed franchise organization um, is this is a group, you know, uh, that similar to, to Weight Watchers where they have coaches and boxes all over the world. And those individuals are earnest, lovely, wonderful coaches, but they're not being sufficiently commercial. So the growth isn't there. So you find literally of 6,000 of these people, all you need is 10 to 15 of them who actually you're seeing do a decent job being commercial in the role. You pull them together and empower them to figure out what the 30% answer is while they share with each other to crack the code of being in that role and being more commercial. You document that process and you export that. And a part of that is when you're, and I, I do want to make sure we get to this, when you're leading those teams, there's a set of attributes to lead the team that are crucial and they exist around candor. One of the things I want to, I'll say now on cultures, the worst eroder of shareholder value is conflict avoidance. If you have conflict avoidance in your organization, you are a shitty leader. And I have had plenty of it in mind. There is no room for conflict avoidance in organizations. You need to have full transparency, full fluid dialogue, full risk-taking, full feedback, full you know, interdependency of, you know, just and I've been noticing something in your role and I think you could be better at it and here's what it is. That's the high-performing teams. If you look at a sports team, the coach isn't just the coach. The coach is the team when they get into the locker room talking about the plays with each other, right? High-performing teams are not alien in the world. They actually exist in sports teams but they don't, some of those attributes don't come in. So candor has to be critical. When you pull that 15 people in that particular role together, you give them and coach them and facilitate with them a set of rules that they're going to live by, including unadulterated candor.
right? And I'm going to go through all of the attributes and ways to coach those attributes into those teams. Um, yeah. And then the gentleman in the blue who was waiting, sorry. If you give it to the gentleman in the blue. Yeah, we got it, and he's got this. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I have an IT company in the Netherlands with a little over 20 people. But we are facing, as you said, you have to avoid conflict. But when no, I no, no, I didn't say that. I said that avoiding conflict, yeah, avoiding conflict kills yeah. organizations. Yeah, but at the moment we are facing in, 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 in Europe, also in the States, I think, uh, there's a shortage of people uh, in, in, in IT programmers and, 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 and technicians. And I didn't avoid conflicts, but it's, it's, it is costing me people. Mm -hmm. And people you don't get back. Yeah. So uh, I'll give you the formula as we go through this. Candor, if candor is the North Star of a successful team, managed conflict is the North Star of a successful team. There's two ways you can successfully have high candor in organizations. One of them is only hire assholes. <laughs> and Ray Dalio and his book around uh, the principles, he, he has the luxury of hiring assholes who are very well paid and absolutely are competitive, evisceratingly candid, etc. They have no problem with that. Oracle is a company that hires people who can deal with this shit. Microsoft used to be. That was the Microsoft culture. Amazon at the very top. That group, they, it's like water off a back. They argue. They, they, it's, now, but by the way, when you get big, you don't necessarily have the luxury of scaling with a strategy of hiring assholes. Dalio has 250 people. He can hire, and he's paying them all millions. He can afford candor as a primary value. The other way is that you build enough of a relationship contract between people that they come to realize that holding back candor is, being, is doing a disservice to somebody you care for. Now, some organizations who have high degrees of care in their organizations, they end up not pushing that care because they're Midwest polite Um, they are, they don't believe in this. They have not activated an actual contract between the employees where candor is actually doing a disservice. <clears throat> so when I, when I coach an executive team, I will say to the executive team on this topic of candor, if any of you believes that one of your peers, if one of your peers could improve something they're doing, Is it high or low professional behavior to withhold that information? It's low. I actually feel that somebody withholding that information is stealing from shareholders and stealing from your peers who could have benefited from your belief system, right? Now, if you tell that to the group and you get everybody to say, yes, that is low professional behavior, And then you say to the group, and are we interested as a team to recontract and have high professional behavior and that we will say to each other feedback if we think it could benefit the other person? Let me, let me just finish this little segue. Um, people will say yes. 
Now, there's a couple little extra pieces to this contract that you need to add. The next piece to this you have to add is, and when I give you the feedback, you have to recognize that you don't need to do anything with it. See, the problem with feedback, feedback was designed hierarchically. It was designed when your manager would tell you what to do differently and you had to do it. When you're doing feedback peer-to-peer, you've got to let the pressure out of the feedback by telling people that feedback is a gift that you could re-gift or do nothing with if you'd like. That's very important. When you're working in an organization, you say, all we're doing is giving you the data. You can do whatever you want to with the data. I don't control you. You don't have to do anything with it, but I love you and I'll give you the information. Right? The other thing is that I actually run a, a, an exercise. I call it an open 360 in a team. An open 360 is where if you had 10 people in your team, you always start with the CEO and everybody goes around first and says, you know, Shane, what I most appreciated about you last quarter was X. And then you say, Shane, what I most appreciated about you last quarter was whatever. So we do this once a quarter. Everybody says to Shane what they most appreciated about Shane. Then we go around and say, Shane, in the next quarter, because I love you and you are so important to our success, I might suggest. Now, the power of that is if you were to say, Shane, what I thought you did shitty last quarter, Shane would now be on the defensive to defend his action the last quarter. But if you just say to Shane, because I love you and I think you're, you know, need, you're so important to our success, next quarter I might suggest, that is giving him a gift that he can do whatever he wants to with it. And then when he's done hearing all the feedback, he gets to pick one or two things he's going to work on for the next quarter. And that becomes his contract of development with the team. We didn't assign it to him. He just chose it. Does that make sense to you guys? Now, doesn't that feel like a much more uh, healthy way to make sure we're now having the candid without the pressure that would traditionally come with hierarchy? You had a question? Going back to um, something you said before, where you create, uh, co-create as a team as opposed to um, get buy-in. One of the problems you have, I see in the organizations I've been part of, is when you sit in the, in the team, you still have the hierarchy from the organization and decision-making gets weighted by the hierarchy. So if the CEO says, well, this is what I think, it's gonna, it gets a higher weighting um, than if you know, the, a junior person on the team says, well, this is what I think. At the end of the day, yeah. as you think about it, it, kinda, it doesn't get equally weighted. So it's... I, in, in companies that have created sufficient psychological safety and have put a premium on candid dialogue, I don't see that happening. When I watched Jamie Dimon's team at JP Morgan, though, in fact, it was, I, we did a study right after the financial crisis, the last financial crisis, and trying to understand why some banks invested in risky mortgage-backed securities and why others did not, and how did some banks fail and how did some banks succeed. So we went through and we found executive teams of all members of the banks. We, found, we interviewed three or four members of each executive team. And what we found was that there were one particular bank that ended up 
surviving but barely. Um, the executive that we, one of the executives we interviewed said, you know, you just didn't critique somebody else's plan because it would be putting a bullet on your back. The CEO and the head of new products came up with the product. It seemed to make us a lot of money. And while some of us felt a little uneasy, we just sat there and let it happen, like tumble weeds rolling in the distance, right? But at JP Morgan, I talked to a very young man who was the CFO at the time. He was a very young man. He was probably in his 30s. And he was one of the youngest guys on the team. And what he said was, I remember that exact conversation. And I was one of the youngest people, but it wasn't even me. It was one of the younger members of the team that raised his hand and said, hey, wait a second. I just don't understand how this works. And he was able to say, I just don't understand how it works. At that point, there was this dead silence. And an older member of the team uh, said, because it fucking doesn't. And they ended up having a half a day brawl and they didn't go there. But it was one of the youngest members of the team because the youngest member of the team knew that his CEO, Jamie Dimon, celebrated audacity and speaking up in meetings. Right? So one of the things that, you know, and I'll get to this in, in the conversation. Um, one of the tools that I use is something called a Yoda in the room. We all know the fuzzy little Yoda character. I love that thing. And what I love about Yoda is the wisdom in Yoda. Here's what I fundamentally believe. Every team has the wisdom of Yoda in it. Every team has the wisdom of Yoda in it, but not in one person. And if you as a CEO, as a leader, would walk into a team and say, we have the wisdom of Yoda, we absolutely can crack any code but we'll only do it if we extract the inclusive ideas and we have the debates and even broaden our team to a broader network of individuals that can give us ideas that we wouldn't even have inside of our own damn company. Because remember, your teams shouldn't just be your corporation. Your team should be anybody you need to achieve your vision. And if getting audacious ideas from outside of your team, why wouldn't you expand your team to advisors, I'm not just talking about paid consultants, but we should all have individuals that are bona fide members of our team, right? And so one of the things I do in the middle of a meeting is before any meeting I have, I pick three people who are the Yodas and it rotates. And then somewhere halfway in the middle of the meeting, I stop and I say, this is when I'm facilitator. Um, I stop and I say to the Yodas, okay, Yodas, What's not being said right now? And I've told everybody in the room, we've got to celebrate them taking risks. They could say that what isn't being said is that, you know, you're quite angry at this because it's going to take budget out of your pockets and you don't buy into it. But somebody else could, could offer that up. And you could say, no, that's not true. But we're celebrating the audacity of that individual to speak up celebrating this little ritual of, who, of having Yodas speaking the truth. One of the things I did with um, John Chambers at Cisco when I was working with his team is we had this voting app in his leadership meeting. He had a leadership meeting of 200 people, and I was coaching the team. And um, halfway through the meeting, I just stopped. And I said, John, may I try something kind of daring? 
and uh, he allowed me. And I said, how many of you feel that the topic of conversation right now is a favorable topic of conversation that's going to lead us strategically to where we're going? And how many of you feel opposite that? And it was 80% felt opposite that. And this was like one of the pillars that the conversation was being built around. Now, it threw John for a loop, but he's smart enough to say, okay, great, now I know this. Right? This is the kind of, and I wish software would be created in WebEx or, you know, whatever. It's like a bullshit meter. <laughs> like during any meeting, we should have a bullshit meter that just says people think it's, you know, people are full of shit. Because what's in your head is not helping the organization. All right, so let me get through here. Um, number one, we were talking about this, and I'll get into more detail, is you have to be leading your team in co-creation. Number two is we've been talking about this, no conflict avoidance. Candor is crucial to all team effectiveness. The next thing is the development journey. If you're a leader of a team, whether it's formal or informal, you should contract with this group of individuals that while you're working together, you are all going to grow like a motherfucker. Like that's a part of the new contract of work. It should be. It should be that while we're working together, we're all going to go to our A game. And you literally contract that. Once you get a group of individuals contracting that while we're working together, we're going to go to our A game, you start to open up the aperture for people to give each other feedback. Does this make sense to you? But this is not what happens. Most executives, once they get to a certain stage, they think that they're using their companies for competencies for success. Very few executive teams feel that they're at you know forty percent on their way to being better. And if you now the next question is, it's a shared, humble co-development journey. So you've got to contract with those other team members that you yourself have a lot of growth to do and that we're going to get each other there. It's not an individualized exercise anymore. And it's not an exercise between the individual and the CEO. It's a co-development journey. And the first thing that I would do, if you haven't ever done this, is next team meeting you walk into, and I don't care if it's an informal team, you know, of a group of, you know, musicians or whatever, if you've been helping to move a movement forward, every once in a while, walk into the room and say, do me a favor, write down on, have everyone write down on a piece of paper, please. What one thing could I do that would make me a better leader of this team? And if you don't even want to call yourself a leader, because it may be an informal structure, you might say, what one thing could I do that would allow me to serve this team better? Tell me one thing I could stop. Tell me one thing I could start, please. And then you let them hand it in and let somebody read all of them out loud in front of you. And even though you think half of them are full of shit, it's okay. You say, thank you. And you pick two things and you say, got it. These are two things I'm going to work on. I mean, this is the kind of modeling of, of a learning environment that leaders need to begin to practice. And it's so easy. Um, once you get in a refined model, you can then start to say to the team, you own each other's success. You can start to step back as a leader and say, I am not the hub and spoke of everything anymore. I can't be. 
you want to bounce ideas off of each other, do it separately before you come to me. If you have problems with each other, take them to each other. One of the, one of the things that I absolutely say as a red flag rule is that nobody in the organization is allowed to talk about another person behind their back unless it's one conversation before you say it to them directly. It's perfectly fine to go to somebody and say, gosh, I'm really having a tough time with Shane. I need to have a conversation with him. How do I have that? And get some coaching on your way to having a conversation with Shane. And that's one of the contracts I make with new teams. I say, can we agree for 30 days not to talk behind each other's back? Can we agree that not only is it low professional behavior, that it frankly is a violation of integrity? And if everybody agrees, then we check in a month later and say, how many of you talk behind each other's back in some way? Knowing that you will, I think it's okay, but are we realizing we're violating integrity? You just did low integrity moves. It's very important. I use integrity very specifically when coaching teams because I feel that this new work contracts, we right now in companies, we violate integrity all the time. I'm not talking about cheating on expense accounts. I'm not talking about, but I'm talking about lies. I'm talking about talking behind people's backs. I'm talking about withholding information that you think could be beneficial to somebody's program because you're too cowardice to do something about it. You're either coward, lazy, indulgent. Those are the, those are the I've got eight of them, uh, primary excuses for not being you know, courageous. Indulgent. Some people just like disliking people in the company. You've gotten to the point where relationships so spoiled that you revel in your dislike of that individual. And that indulgence, I see it all the time in organizations. But we've got to call this stuff out as just low integrity behavior. And this is not the dialogue that's had in most companies. We don't call it low integrity. We don't equate it to cheating on expense accounts. But we need to. Um, now, the one thing that I can say is, I don't care if you sit on another person's team or you own the team, you can make this change happen. Everything I'm about to show you is something that you could walk in and say and do little pieces of, like the Yoda in the room exercise. There's nothing that would stop you if you were on a team to say, hey, I saw this fun exercise called Yoda in the room, and just to increase the candor and, and conversation that we have, let's pick three people and halfway through the meeting, let's, let's pause and see whether or not we're, we're being conflict avoidant on stuff. Anybody could offer that. Now, if you have a real asshole as a CEO, then maybe that wouldn't be allowed, but almost everybody could get away with these. My point is, the new book is called Leading Without Authority. Anybody can take leadership. And one of the things that I say to an executive team is that, and you should say this to your teams, if the, if the meeting isn't going the way you want it to go, everybody's job is to get it back on track. That's just a whole different contract. Usually it's the person who called the meeting, it's their team. But no, in this new world, we don't have time for that. Everybody's job is to get the meeting back on track. Everybody's job is to raise their hand and say, I think we've gone down a rat hole. Everybody's job is to keep the team effective and the mission moving forward. So what you're seeing with me is you're seeing a much more dispersed authority into the team with a set of distinct rules. Now, these are the areas. I, this is a sample. We've created a diagnostic tool. 
that we give to hundreds and hundreds of teams. <clears throat> and I'm, I picked one question out of each. Um, I've, got the I've got the full diagnostic tool here. I'd be happy to share. But this is what I wanted. And I don't have time to do the breakout exercise in your groups of three. But let me go through these for you. For collaboration and inclusion, all team members welcome the collaborative engagement of others in helping solve their business challenges. How many of the people on your team welcome the collaborative engagement of the team members on their business challenges? And it's interesting because a lot of people get very defensive. And you've got to recontract that. You literally have to say to the team, if we're going to be a high-performing team, everybody in this room has got to be open to hear the feedback of other individuals. And if you're not, get the hell out of here. Now, it doesn't mean that everyone has to take your feedback. You have to hear it. You get that distinction? You were not moving to consensus. Just because people disagree doesn't mean that we have to create mush and, and satisfy everybody. The head of IT is still the head of IT. The head of product is still the head of product. That person has final decision-making after they've gotten the benefit of unadulterated full candor. Now that person makes a decision. Now, if that person makes a decision repeatedly ignoring data and information, then the CEO may make a different decision on who they have in that role. Or it could coach them outside of the room to say, you're not listening to the feedback and it's having a, a detrimental effect. But the key contract here is to get the feedback in the open. I'm trying to think if there's any other on the collaboration piece. Um, you know, this is, this is a little audacious, but what we have seen is that every, on your executive team, the people on your executive team have to think that their primary team is your team. So when somebody says, how's your team? They will often be thinking it's the people that report to them. The reality is to really make organization change occur, your team is the highest team that you sit on not the team that you lead. Because it's at the highest team that you sit on is the team which makes the most impact at shareholder value. And you need to consider yourself a leader of that highest team you sit on, even though you're not the formal leader of that team. Again, all of these you know, are very distinct. And just a, one of the things I'm doing is I'm writing a book on this topic, this coaching we've been doing for 10 years. And I'm going to roll out a practice. I do a very elite practice with this business. I coach this business for just CEOs and executive teams of some of the biggest companies in the world. We have a ventures group that coaches it for smaller organizations. And we do that for smaller amounts of capital, but some equity. Um, I want to blow this business up big time. And I'm looking, and you, if anybody knows me, I'm looking for a managing partner of this business to run and to take this business more ubiquitously. So one of the things that if any of you knows of anybody who is a great business person, is not looking for a job, I'm looking for a partner who will run and grow this business at scale. So I would love to get any impact there. Um, okay, candor. All team members share openly with each other even when it's risky to do so. And you know, the, 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 I'm gonna show you a set of data at the end of this that will show you what the spans are of typical teams. 
Um, you know, the one thing that, um, there's another question I put up there. All team members are willing to give input to each other in service of the business, even when the topic is outside of their area of expertise. You know, you'll cross the lines. It's, an, it's a very important question. Elevation. All team members are committed to elevating each other by offering, now this is, these are important, feedback on business practices and performance, as well as each other's professional capabilities. It's one thing to give feedback on the way, you know, your process. You know, I'm head of sales. Hey, marketing, I think you should be collecting slightly different data. Okay, I'll listen to that. Hey, marketing, um, you know, I feel like uh, your team has been ineffective at delivering on X, Y, and Z, right? The third and most difficult is, hey, CMO, I think your leadership is, needs to be changed, right? So there's different levels of feedback that one needs to contract in an organization, and they're not all equal, but they're all equally as important. You've got to be able to give feedback on process. You've got to be able to give feedback all the way down to competencies. Um, all team members are open about their areas of growth and constantly seek to develop themselves both personally and professionally. All team members of this team are accountable for shared goals. And this is important. So most, if, if one person on your team isn't performing, the old, the worst world is that individual is sort of left out on a little raft by themselves and everybody's just happy it's not them. Right? In some decent companies, people will say, well, I'd be happy to help. In high-performing teams, everybody knows it's their job to get them there. That rarely happens. Where literally every person knows that if some division is ill-performing, they own that group's success. Which means stop the staff meeting, spend 50% of it re-engineering what they're doing. Spend your time with that leader coaching and figuring out what the issues are. It's just not a part of the contract today. In the world where transformation wasn't upon us every day, we could afford just to let one group get a little bit down and that's, that's the CEO and their problem. Everybody has to own each other's success. That is a new contract. That's a new contract. Um, now, underlying all of this is you have to have relationships. The stuff I did with you the first night, day, those intimacy exercises, you know, personal professional check-ins, sweet and sour. There's a, that wonderful question that I always ask at my dinner parties when I'm coaching a team. What experience of your past do you think defines who you are today? Don't ever do dinners anymore that aren't curated storytelling. It's a waste of time. I have a whole list of eight questions. What, what experience of your past do you uh, think defines who you are today? What do you want your legacy to be that you're afraid you might not achieve? Right? You can come up with these questions. You actually, it's funny, you can go to them. Even like some of the love questions, what are they, 36 questions of love? Or so, I just saw those the other day. I thought they were, I was like, I'm going to steal some of those for teams. It's just open, vulnerable questions. What, what it's doing is it's the, it's, what we're trying to do is we're, we're purposefully engineering empathy, which gives permission for all of this tough stuff I'm talking about. And then here's where we were. So the average team, when I start working with them, um, 
on their collaborative abilities, they're usually on a scale of zero to five. They're usually at a 2.5. And with focus after six months, they can get to a 4.3, using their time collaboratively and engaged. Their candor, by the way, this is hundreds and hundreds of, of Fortune 500 organization teams. 2.4 can get to 4.4. Agility, 2.6, that's, I didn't talk much about this, but agility is such a crucial, agile leadership is such a crucial element. Monthly sprints to strategic outcomes, we can get from 2.6 to 3.7. Agility is one of the more difficult things of organizations to, to embrace. Accountability, but that's accountability peer-to-peer, starts out around 3.4 and get to 4.1. And the relational commitment of not letting each other fail as a peer group, developing each other, owning each other's success, 2.3 to 4.7. Whether or not uh, you're actually activated as a developmental group, 2.8 to 4.3. The point that I'm making is that if you're a leader, these elements I've been talking about, it's your job to be the active recontractor. You need to be the active recontractor of these distinct behaviors. Now, one of the things I do is I use, and I'll give you a hint, just use the staff meeting. Don't talk about behaviors in the aggregate. Talk about how you're going to re-engineer your staff meetings. Because staff meetings is your practice ground. Think of the staff meeting as a scrimmage opportunity. You got your team on the court during the staff meeting. They're all there. Getting them to be candid in that room, they're all there. Getting them to hold each other accountable, they're all there. Getting them to be supportive at the dinner the night before, they're all there, right? You can absolutely use that medium as your coaching ground for when they're not in that room. I don't know what you expected from today, but I hope you got something that you can use. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you want to review this information, note that you can get on the Mind Valley Talks YouTube channel and search for Keith Ferrazzi, and you will find the video of this talk ready for you to share with your friends and colleagues. Keith is a super charismatic guy, and he's incredible to watch on stage. He's just so humble and real, and you just tend to connect with him in a really deep way. And those qualities, of course, are the qualities that he says we need to bring into organizations. Now, this episode is brought to you by Mind Valley Mentoring. Mind Valley Mentoring is an online program by Mind Valley, and it's one of our two digital offerings. The first is Mind Valley Quest, where you get to go on deep 30-day journeys to master different topics, from speed reading to conscious parenting to longevity. Mind Valley Mentoring, however, is based on going wide. In other words, for $99 a year for the basic version of mentoring, you get access to hundreds of 30-minute to 50-minute talks from some of the most remarkable minds I've encountered. These are the people who are my mentors, and they include people like Keith Ferrazzi. Now, you can go deeper. You can also opt for an advanced version of mentoring, which includes Mind Valley Mentoring for Work, This is hosted by my co-host, Jason Campbell. And this is where you get really incredible tips on how to optimize work so you are more productive for every minute you spend in your workplace. Check out Mindvalley Mentoring on mindvalley.com forward slash mentoring. 
And what's beautiful about this is all of these episodes are going to be available on your Mind Valley app and on your desktop. So they are easily within access. Thank you for joining us in this Mind Valley podcast. Can't wait to see you again next week. Vishen Lakiani, and this is the Mind Valley Podcast. If you like the Mind Valley Podcast, take the next step. Become a Mind Valley member. Imagine being coached daily by the greatest teachers on the planet. How quickly would you transform your health, your mindset, your body? your relationships? How quickly would you double the size of your company? How quickly would you see your career grow? How quickly would you eliminate any limiting belief that's holding you back and manifest a life that you once thought beyond your dreams? When you become a member, you don't just get access to the greatest education in the world. You become part of a community of 150,000 of the most incredible people dedicated to personal growth. Go to mindvalley.com forward slash now to get started.